You're listening to Reality Check, sci-fi London's podcast about science fiction across the media. In this podcast, we're looking at the new adaptation of High Rise, the classic J.G. Ballard novel from the 1970s, which has been adapted for the cinema by Ben Wheatley. In this episode, I'm talking to production designer Mark Tildesley, who worked on such films as 28 Days Later and Sunshine, costume designer Odile Dix Moreau, who worked on such films as The Constant Gardener and TV shows including The Woman in White and Gormenghast, and special effects man Dan Martin, who's a frequent collaborator with Ben Wheatley and has worked on such films as Sightseers and A Field in England. My Q&A with the three artisans who worked on High Rise was recorded at the British Library as the closing panel of a day of events celebrating J.G. Ballard in the 70s. It seems a little awkward to follow a really powerful film with a discussion about it. Like, I feel we need to all kind of digest for five minutes, but uh, the dogs are still cooking, so um, we'll go straight to it. It's interesting as well that normally when I do these Q&As, it's with directors and writers, and so it's nice actually to have a selection of the production crew to actually talk about the nuts and bolts of making a movie. Um, I might start with you, Ordeal, because um, when Sienna spoke at the beginning of the film, uh, she said she actually chatted to you a little bit about her character. And a lot of actors say that, particularly when they're doing, say, a science fiction film, a period film, when they actually put on the costumes, it helps them develop the character. So presumably, actually, you also had some conversations with the actors as you were dressing them. Well, I think... The actors generally have a little conversation with their directors mm. in terms of you know, deciding they're going to do the part and talk about it. But their real first contact with the film in, in the making of it is the costume designer. Mm. So I come armed with my conversations that I would have had with Ben and Amy. And so it's like um, you, you, that's how you started off the process. Mm. You know, It's very important that you feel that you... Because I felt very, <coughs> very strongly on this film that I needed to um, be true to their vision because they're both... Ben and Amy are quite visual... Um, mm. visual you know, in terms of the films that they make. So I was a bit nervous about how I was going to be able to... you know be truthful to that. So it was very good to have a whole conversation with them. And some of the things in the script were already there mm. in Sienna Miller's character. Uh, but with um, Sienna Gilroy's character, it was slightly different. But that was very much a joint collaboration. Sienna has a great, um, has great love for fashion and clothes, so she already was, you know, easy. Really. Mm. I mean, you said that uh, Ben and Amy are very visual. Mm. Um, how much, then, uh, is Ben to use the word, uh, an auteur, where he actually has his hand in every single aspect of the production. How much of it was it left up to you to uh, choose the costumes and I think, build the costumes? Um, it's, it's a combination of the two. Mm. But on this particular uh, way, it was decided that Amy would have um, oh. more, in, more okay. um, influence on the costumes, maybe, than perhaps other aspects of the film, and he trusted her mm. judgments. Mm. And um, she, you know... As I got to see the things, uh, the pictures that I sent her, I got kind of like an idea. She, you know, the, I would think, oh, well, I'd quite like that thing. And then she would choose something else. And I would then work out why, you know, think why had she chosen that. And a lot of that was her... I think I'm pretty, pretty um, confident in my knowledge of the 70s because I grew mm. up through that period. 
and I'm really fond of it. Um, but um, I think through mm. her vision, she brought the sort of slightly more science fiction and her personal mm. view of the 70s, because she was, you know, I was a student, she was younger. Mm. So that was quite interesting to see that. So some things, oh, that's really great, that looks a bit Star Trek-ish or something. And I think, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, that, yeah, I would, yeah. Mm. So the thing is to give enough options that you're prepared to be, that you're happy with, and I wouldn't mind which, but that's quite common in most films now. Mm. And Mark, so I guess as yeah. the production designer, you were responsible for the overall look of the film. Did that extend to, I wouldn't say the colour of uh, grey paint, but um, certainly the sets, the, uh, the decor, you know, were those ultimately your decisions? Or was it very much a, a collaboration? No, it's very much a collaboration. Mm. So if, if I'm painting someone in grey, I have to go and talk <laughs> to the costume department about what colour they're in. So it doesn't clash. In case they're in grey. <laughs> She was. <laughs> she was. Um, so the shade of grey had to be discussed. So, yeah, we, we collaborate on all those things. As, as, as um, Odile said, uh, Ben and Amy are both artists in their own right, you know, they're animators and painters and yeah. stuff. So, so ben, ben starts the, the, the collaboration with, with a set of, of storyboards, yeah. which are uh, really beautiful, very fluid and very simple things, but there is enough information in them to, to note the particular colour or style of that, what he's trying to get to. And I think he uses it as a way to help him, you know, formulate how the film looks. Mm. So it, it's not storyboards like you imagine. They're really fluid. They're like little sort of uh, Eastern European uh, <laughs> watercolours. But it, they are very, very um, poignant. And you, you, you sort of get a sense. So it was, he has that up on the wall. You know, it's, it's vast, you know. <laughs> it's, it's like the Coen brothers. It's the whole film almost. And... Yeah. Um, so we, we, would all gather, we would gather back around those images and talk about things and, and just, you know, and then we, then we would bring our own ideas to it. Mm. I mean, obviously for um, a British film, they haven't got $100 million to create everything from scratch. So presumably a lot of those sets were actually real locations that you dressed for the film. No, actually, no? we built everything. Oh, wow, okay. So all, all that you saw, apart from maybe the garden, which is supposed to be on the, on the roof, is actually a garden that we superimposed onto the top floor. Um, but everything else we built in, in okay. Northern Ireland. So we, we, mm. we, um, we went there for various reasons, but we came across in Bangor, which is just outside Belfast, a 1973 swimming pool <laughs> next to a police station. So it had been un hadn't been vandalised or touched. So, so when we opened it up, it was like, oh, okay, this is great. So in a sense, we, we, so we built into the, we had the swimming pool, we built into the gymnasium. So all, 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 the, all, the, all the flats, obviously, you know, the, there's a vernacular for the flats and we've, we've tried to drive this Barbican-esque concrete brutalist um, structure through, the, through each one. So it was almost built like a set of building blocks so what we would do is we would do version one with building blocks in one place and then overnight turn it around and put the building blocks in a different position, literally like that. So, um, yeah, so we were in this gymnasium and we had it completely full and we, we turned around, I think there's about six or seven different character flats. And, and on the end, we ran out of speed of what to do. We didn't know what to do with this next one. I had no ideas left. So Ben said, I've got a great idea. Why don't we flip the film around, yeah? So the, the final flat you see, which is the one with all the paintings that are destroyed, we literally, we flipped the camera. So we just flipped all the graphics and the numbers around. And anything you could read the other way around, we flipped it. And then flipped the whole thing around. So it felt like it was the other side of the building, you know, mm. built in a different way. Right. But yeah, it was tight. The budget was tight. But okay. I think we, we built most things from, you know, we went for everything from 
we built the we sort of built the world really. Okay. Uh, that supermarket was a loca a very lucky find because mm. it was in Bangor High Street. It just happened to go past. Oh, it looks like there's an empty supermarket here. <laughs> we went inside and it was it was a vast empty supermarket. But we had to we had to we had to bring in the concrete pillars and and then fill it you know bring in all that mm. product and stuff. But that that world was. And the, uh, the dissection room in the hospital was a storage room at the back of the, uh, at yeah. the, back of the supermarket. Yeah, it was the fridge. Ended up doubling up. The refrigerator. Yeah, cold, cold the... <laughs> Who knew that Bangor was such a fire? No, it was it, literally, you know, it's seriously. And then the garden, you know, the one on the rooftop, that was at the back of the swimming pool. The castle. It was, it was the, the, yeah, the Bangor Castle. Yeah. Uh, Formal, not, not that we want to suggest that parts of Wales are like a 1970s dystopia. <laughs> the, one of the reasons I was interested about the, uh, the design of the sets, though, is you also worked on, I believe, Michael Winterbottom's Code 46, um, which, yeah. for people who haven't seen it, it's set in a futuristic Shanghai? Yes. it's. A, it's um, and yeah. in order to create that city, it's actually kind of a portmanteau city made of, of loads of other cities in order to get a bit yeah. of the Docklands and look futuristic here, a bit of the city. So to go from an approach where yeah. uh, you create the future as a kind of uh, montage to one where you actually build it from scratch, I guess those are two very different but also yeah. complementary approaches to depicting the future. Yeah, my, my, Michael, Michael Winterbottom calls, calls you a film architect because right. he likes to just steal great pieces of architecture and then meld them together in the edit, which is a clever way to... So, so in that film, in Code 46, we would go out of a door in China and open up something in, in uh, Jalzomir in India. So you, you literally go from one place to another. So that was fun. But, I mean, it was n it's nice as a designer to sort of build from the floor up mm. and control it, mm. even if it, it, it does become quite limited. And it's quite tight sometimes. And, you wanna, and I think the Ben and the CG world, they did, they did a great job in, in letting it breathe occasionally and open up. But from a logistics point of view, it's quite good to be in one place because mm. um, if you you know we literally just lived on in that Bangladesh centre. Everything <laughs> happened in that Bangladesh centre. But when you we had such a big kind of big cast that you know there were days when it was just great that we didn't have to move very far or move locations or because it is like a travelling circus. So I think that was a very intelligent move in mm. trying to use the resources really cleverly. Dan, I, I hate to ask a magician to reveal their tricks, um, but as the special effects man uh, on the movie, uh, there are obviously certain shots we think, oh, how did they do that? Um, one in, obviously one is where the, uh, the body falls from the sky onto the blue car and slowly but surely I'm works its way through the bonnet. Very sad to say I cannot uh, <laughs> too much insight in that. Not, not due to reluctance, but just because that's predominantly the... Uh, post effects team. Okay. So that's uh, that would have been the actor being shot as an element and then composited into another shot. So that's not a not mine. I'm more puppets, mm. uh, figurative stuff, and I ended up making quite a lot of stuff for the art department um, okay. as soft props and, and dressings that wouldn't hurt people when they were hurled at them. Mm. <laughs> and, and Afghan dogs and heads uh, the, yeah, that the, torn the, off. The dead Afghan hound, the, the drownable Afghan hound, the, skin, <laughs> the skinnable head. Um, Did you things. get a shopping list? Drownable Afghan hound? Yeah, it does start head. like that. Um, and then we sort of... And, go through and, and scrub it down a little bit normally for budget. That but, head, um, did you do the thing that the head? Yeah, oh. the, the degloved head. Yeah, that's pretty we were, um We were assigned a, uh, a pathologist um, by production as, a, as an advisor to come and, uh, and talk about the anatomy inside the head because mm. we had to be able to make it work inside and out. Um, and initially we'd talked about having the actor um, for the early shots hidden inside the bench with his head sticking up through a <laughs> hole um, just because, you know, they were 
they wanted it to be super real before mm. he's skinned. But um, quite a nice compliment. When they saw the head, they were like, we don't need the actor, we'll just use the head. Um, <laughs> we, um, so I, I, I turned up a couple of days early and, and sat with Tom and the, um, uh, and the pathologist and we went through how he would cut it and, and mm. how he would peel it and the bits that had to look more difficult than they would be with the puppet because of <laughs> connective tissue and stuff. Um, and that was a really fun sort of afternoon of Tom <laughs> looking, looking interested and then occasionally just go, oh, that's, that's horrible. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was very satisfying. Mm. And you've worked with Ben on a number of his films yeah. now. Uh, and I guess as each one becomes more ambitious, then the realism of head skinning becomes also more ambitious. Yeah, I mean, Ben's, uh, there's been a sort of a lucky thing, a lucky uh, synchronous, uh, synchronicity between us in that Ben has always turned up with the new script and it's always had something that I've wanted to do since the beginning of my career in it. So he sort of benefits from a decade or two of unpaid R&D. <laughs> <laughs> um, and The Head was definitely one of those. And uh, we've got those instances in Free Fire, the new one, and, and the other projects we've done together. There's always been something where I'm like, oh, good, finally. Mm. Someone's brought me a script with this mm. in it. So. And it's almost as much that when you're working in a film like this where it's full colour, you know, you have to get a pathologist in, but if you're doing a black and white film like Phil in England, you can cheat a bit with the blood and things like it's, that. Well, it's it's more... I've, I did a film a couple of years before um, Field, which had been shot in colour, and then we had it sprung on us that it was going to be edited in black and white. Mm. And it's quite a different concern, because you what you think things are going to look like in black and white isn't always what they look like in black and white, so you end mm. up choosing slightly different colours to go... Mm. into a black and white Tick special effect. Click to red. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you tend to go a lot browner with the mm -hmm. fake bloods if, you're, if they're going to be shown in monochrome because otherwise they look kind of grey yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not quite what the audience expects. Mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting you should bring up, you know, the, the topic of colour because that's obviously something that both of you had to work with as well because we have this idea of the palette of the 1970s which I suppose to evoke that period you need to adhere to to a certain extent. I think that was an instinctive, an instinctive thing on, on this mm. film because um, there were certain, certain strictures already that mm. were written in the script, like Tom's costume, mm. which was a journey, you know, it was like one costume, so we had to make this whole journey of a costume. And that was all about the art of breakdown. You know, we had about eight shirts and three sh trousers and two jackets, and we had to keep working it through. And that was quite difficult because we did everything out of continuity, of course, as you would do. <laughs> so mm. that when he's covered in paint and then he kind of, when he did it, was different to what we'd imagined he would have done it. So that was quite tricky. And then Sienna Miller was all about stripes and graphics. That mm. was all, it read in, into the scripts, just, you know, that she had this theme of stripes. I don't know if it came through in the story, but there were little journeys. The little boy had a journey as well in the way he trend, you know, became more kind of military and more mm. like um, with a little shirt again, looking a little bit like Tom. So there were lots of little journeys that were already in there and then you work out everything around it. So some characters were more colorful than others, I think, but only on the level of their importance in the film, I think. Mm. But um, when you're looking through the stock, you're naturally going to get the natural palette of the 70s. I think you, yeah, it'd be different, definitely different from the 80s, which was mm. more, more um, you know, much brighter primary colours than, say, the 70s. Yeah. yeah. I remember a conversation, we had an early conversation with, with Ben and Amy uh, about the way to pre prescribe the 70s and, and decided that we, we wouldn't be prescriptive about it or, mm. or you know, ben, as Ben described it, it's like, it's like, do you get the 1970s catalogue book and open up? Because you realise, actually, the world is made up of 1950s, 60s, yeah. 70s, 80s. 
not 80s because it's the future. <laughs> it's another film. Anyway, but, but so it was like it was. So we sort of tried to not get into the cliched world of that 70s look and, and use a. But they love palette. the 70s, don't they? They really. Oh, like they're mad about it. Yeah. 70s. <laughs> they do seem to like the 70s. Yeah. I'll bring a clock up so that we uh, have enough time for questions from the audience. Mm. Uh, but I was interested in terms of uh, like the little details that make it look like the 1970s. I saw in one shot that uh, one of the children was holding a, uh, a violent comic called Action from the 1970s, particularly mm. the issue that got it trouble, in trouble with uh, the yeah. moral majority. For people who don't know about this, there was a comic that was published between Valentine's Day and about Halloween in 1976. And one of the issues of the comic, which was the one that was in the movie, has a policeman lying on the ground about to be beaten to death by a yob with a bicycle chain. And needless to say, that upset the Daily Mail et al. and Mary Whitehouse. Was, was that sort of thing your yeah. decision? And then that came from Ben, actually. Oh, right, Those okay. sort of, uh, he's, bits of humour. Yeah, yeah. Mm. He's, he's, he's very into all that and massively into comics as well. So. Yeah. There's references and in-jokes all the way through that yeah, often come massive. from Ben. Although he mm. invites them from his crew as well. Well, I suppose in terms of comics, in a way, you were competing a little bit with the Dread movie that came out a few years ago because that has kind of created a new image of dystopian tower blocks in the future. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's, there's, um, there's one shot uh, towards the end of, um, of a load of stuff being thrown down the central reservation, mm. uh, and it's one of the only times you see the central reservation in the... In the, uh, in the film, and that kind yeah. of changes the layout of the building when you see that, and it feels much more like um, like the Dread Tower at that point. Mm. We, we couldn't afford to build, uh, or, or we couldn't afford to shoot masses of furniture falling down. <laughs> so when you look at that shot, that is a black tube. <laughs> and then we bought German dolls furniture. Brilliant. <laughs> it's true. And then someone said for hours, we just kept lighting it and dropping them down like this. So that... That is very, very well-made German doll furniture down the black, black tube. But, but that's, that was a sort of exciting thing mm. about the film, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the, 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 the idea of not having enough money, it's not that. It's a sort of limited palette which makes you mm. inventive. And, 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 you know, I, I had more fun doing that. Yeah, we had a lot of fun wrapping Ken, uh, yeah. Enzo up in that outfit. Yeah, we really, literally, it was <laughs> yeah. tall belts on. And we all made, made it things. ourselves. We all did it yeah. ourselves. And that, it was just, and the, the, the necklace with the teeth and all of that sort of, that was, there, there was a drawing in his storyboard about that and everything. But he loved the fact it was already homemade. So mm. the set decorator and I made that together. And we yeah. really had much more blood and, you know, make it all. We had a great set decorator, yeah, Becky Smith. Becky Smith, who, 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 He was in there doing it with us. Yeah, he's, he's a maker and a painter and an artist. But he also set decks Batman and massive films. But he's now doing his own. He's doing his uh, design himself now. But he 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 had no deal. Had great great fun. Yeah, making and um, the books. It really, we, we yeah. thought it all up together. You know, and we bought these bits of leather bags, bags, mm. cut them up, and I said it'd be great if he was collecting books. And mm. so so it was good fun. And Ben was really appreciative of all of that mm. sort of thing because he liked it more. He didn't you know expect a kind of fantastic sort of slick product. Mm. Um, and I guess also you'd need to work with Dan if someone was shot to like fit the blood squibs underneath their costumes and yeah, so on. Yeah. I don't think we did that much shooting. No, no it's just the one, okay. one gunshot. Yeah. <laughs> a few stabbings. Yeah, which, um, yeah, a few stabbings, <laughs> yes. yes I mean, you, that was also quite cleverly done because originally it was going to be much more comic strip uh, with the, you know, the cloaks mm. and everything and then we just, mm. it kind of got uh, watered muted. down, yeah, muted down <laughs> from various sources and then gave in, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's, a, 
Sorry, go ahead. Uh, it's always a certain amount of curtailing some of mm. those grimmer instincts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, it's interesting, Mark, that you were saying about you know using toy furniture. In a way, it feels that then you're almost using the technology of the 1970s, which has a kind of cinematic association as well. It's the sort of thing that Derek Meads might have done, Meadings yeah. might have done, in order to create a special effect in a James Bond film or Thunderbirds. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think the, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's true. I mean, I don't, you know, when some, some, of, some of the bits in the film, maybe some of the CG were, is more painterly than you'd imagine. Mm. It's less sort of plastic and, and, and has a sort of texture and a feel that actually... You know, if you see a lot of very, very expensive films, it, you think, oh, it's not very good. But actually, in a world, it, it sort of works like an old painted backdrop. Or like, it's quite old-style filmmaking with Ben. And, and we couldn't really afford to make extremely plastic-finished tower blocks with helicopters yeah. flying around. So you end up with this more painterly texture. And so the whole film slightly floats in, in a more tiny theatrical sense, slightly above, you know, in its own, in its own world, you know. Mm. Which I hope did justice to the to the novel. I know there's lots of specialists out there who <laughs> <laughs> who've read the novel hundreds of times. But, but well, did, I mean, did you find yourselves going back to the novel in order to, yeah. or do you no. just trust in the script and the direction? Yeah. Okay, but it was very much um, trusting in Ben mm. and their vision. You know, because I think that would have brought a conflict. Really, yeah. I think mm. it's always fun to read it afterwards. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, maybe. But it's, see, once version. you're making the film, it can yeah. be quite tricky because you. you you start to get mixed up with which idea was from the script and which was from the book. And well, I suppose it's both a blessing and a curse that not much of Ballard has been filmed, so you're not competing against other adaptations, but mm. then because it's kind of virgin territory, people are looking towards well, you, actually, oh, are they going to get the it right? The book's more gruesome. Right. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the dentist go, does all sorts of ghastly things at the end of the book, I seem to remember. Well, I suppose <laughs> if you want a horrific 70s dentist, you just watch Marathon Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, we've got about 25 minutes for questions. Um, uh, if anyone has any, there's a couple of any mode, roving mics in the audience. Yep, there's a gentleman in the second row. You wait for the uh, microphone to come to you. Um, I'm a massive fan of 70s and 70s fashion as well, but I think I probably lean more into a kind of kitsch Jason King kind of <laughs> look. So I think you, you obviously... You had a lot more style, perhaps, <laughs> um, in terms of, of the, the costumes in the film. But it's Tom's suit that I find a bit odd for me. I was expecting, like, the kipper ties oh, and, more, no. and more width. To, I, I don't know. There's a, it's but do you think that kind of character suit. would work? I mean, That's think, the thing, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. His that. suit is based on George, George Lazenby's James Bond suit, 1969. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 and, and Tom was um, quite struck by how strong I felt about it. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he'd been wearing quite sort of skimpy Armani, you know, the taste, the style now. And so it's really long and it really hangs from the shoulders. But actually, you know, he, 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 he had took it in a bit more than I would have liked because I was just explaining to him that period, you, it all hangs from the shoulders, if you look at it. Yep. And we did try on about 15 pairs of different trousers to get the right pair because it, obviously it was so important to him. But um, no, I, you know, because for me it's not about, you know, I think it would have distracted from his character. Mm. And I don't really want the clothes to, you know, it to be a style piece. Um, I think for his, you know, he was um, quite an academic. And so he would have worn slightly straighter, though he, he made it, it, you know, he, he did give it a little bit of style. <laughs> no, that, and Good that's a contrast to Wilder with his sort of denim, because yes, I can get yeah. that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, a no, great suit, fantastic suit. Yeah, 
No, with, with, with um, Luke, he, he wore original 70s, whereas Tom's was made, and then we had to kind of find something that was quite re reasonably priced that we could rip up several times. So Luke said, <laughs> said for, at the beginning, he didn't think he'd spend half the movie covered in blood like that. <laughs> he hadn't anticipated that, the of, which kind of became a costume in itself, which was a little bit yeah. uncomfortable lying in your trailer waiting for your next take. <laughs> And I suppose you have a get-out clause as well with science fiction, that because this is an alternate 1970s where they yeah. could build buildings like that, perhaps fashions went slightly differently. Uh, yeah, I, I think I left Ben and Amy to guide me in that mm. point of view. I sort of stuck to, to my knowledge, to my, the way I work, which is character-based, and let them mm. push me towards a slightly... Uh, but they didn't push me, they didn't push that very hard, the sort of science fiction mm. too much. I mean, I know the secretary to... Tom, the, the woman, they chose that kind of Star Trek dress, which um, was slightly <laughs> yeah. more 60s, in fact. Mm. But um, So that was the interesting thing. But actually, um, no, they, they, they sort of... Um, we, I think we did it quite true to the 70s, mm. really, actually. Yeah. Good question, though. Oh, yeah. Great answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, three along. Hi, I wondered if the, the scene at the beginning and the very end, the other character was a deliberate echo of... Uh, character in Brazil, mm. and uh, the other, my other question was, why did Margaret Thatcher pop up at the end of the film? Who, what the, does anybody know what the reasoning behind that was? Because it seemed a bit curious. I think that's to me. a personal thing of Ben's, that's isn't a it? Thing for Ben, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I think Margaret Thatcher. It was just it was the it was the beginning of Thatcher's era. So, yeah. and uh, you know, it was a, it's a study of it's a social study of sci-fi social study of British society. So. Um, Thatcher was an important part of that. So. And he looked a little bit like Harold Wilson, if you. Little, but, but I think that was an accident. Yeah, he did. Just, he did, yeah. It was just yeah. we all went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything, and I'm not sure if it's a reference to Brazil, but if it is, it's, it's a great film. It's a good so thing to reference. Good thing to be copying, if at all. Yeah. But yeah. I think he does like Brazil, though. Yeah. Ben. Yeah, yeah I think you're well, right. Well, that's it as probably much is. a critique of yeah. brutalist you know, yeah. architecture and yeah. environments. Yeah. Any other questions? Don't be shy. Oh, I'll keep going then. Um, and actually, you know, it's funny the uh, the mention of Gilliam's Brazil. Do you think there is a specific? Well, he's actually not British. It's, I've just ruined the own question I was going to ask. But <laughs> yeah. do you think there is uh, a very much a different British view of science fiction than there is of American? Well, Gilliam's definitely working within British science yeah, fiction. Let's, let's pretend he's British. Yeah, let's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, it, it tends, British science fiction is often much more about how it affects the individuals within mm. the scenario rather than the world um, and I think that this is, is very much part of that tradition where it's about the, um, the, the breaking down of the people mm. as people um, within the building um, and I think one of the things that Ben was doing about it was showing these because you know in the book and, and in the film You've, each section of the building is characterised as an individual. Mm. And so although you've got this very large cast, um, you've got each, each of them mm. is sort of focused into a, a specific person for their bit of the building. Mm. Um, and that, Ben works very well with large casts, but it was nice to have the focus down um, for those arcs for the story. Yeah. And I guess satire as well, particularly in a film like this, where you know, someone in the audience asked about Thatcher, well, that perhaps as little heavy-handed, but mm -hmm. as a reflection of what was going on in the late 1970s with the winter of discontent and people queuing for food and petrol, then, you know, this is almost like a microcosm of the end of the it's decade. A reflection of that, yeah, decade. It almost feels like the sort of thing where 
did you go to any kind of contemporary uh, footage from the late 1970s of social unrest in order to create some of the milieu on screen? Yeah, we certainly had it as a reference point. Mm. You know, um, we had photographs of all that, the, the uh, rubbish not being collected. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I remember we had one image of, yeah, of thousands <coughs> of thousands. We were going to do it, but we didn't do it in the end, but thousands of black men miners. Oh. We didn't have enough time and money, I don't think. But. And it was easy enough to source enough 1970s cars that you could destroy. <laughs> it was quite tricky, the cars. A lot of those cars are not real. They're... they're, they're um, Mm. Oh, the magic of cinema. <laughs> CG! <laughs> no, I mean, actually, if you pause the film long enough mm. and you finally get to, you can, we've replicated each car, so we've got... How many cars did you have? Oh, we had about 25 and then we made about 150. Some of them are, some of them are photos of Matchbox cars. and <laughs> They're right in the background, so you sort of... When you come to that sea of cars as you look over and stuff, 25 of them are ours, the rest we... we we, we took the same car, recoloured it, dropped it mm. here, did, you know, used Matchbox cars and bits of, did plates of stuff and cheated. It was, it's quite low-fi, low-key low on the old CG world, but I think it has it's a, nice. it, yeah. fine, it's fine. Well, I don't remember what police cars looked like in the 1970s, <laughs> but I think I had a toy police car that yeah, looked that like, just like that one. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> Any, yep. Oh, okay. It's a very quick detailed question. I just missed the, the book that's conspicuously flashed at the beginning of the movie, um, as people are headed out of the... It must be one of the other in-jokes, along with the, the action comic book. There's somebody holding a paperback that's shown yeah, the cover so of which... I thought people laughed this. in the audience and must have registered what it was, but... It's a Freud. Uh, Freud, yeah. okay, fine. It's Freud, but it's our own version of the cover. Is it civilization? It's you know, uh, what are those orange paperbacks called? Uh, penguin. Penguin, a penguin paperback version of Freud yeah. that we made up. Yeah. Well, I suppose the lead character is a satire in R.D. Lang, you know. Yeah. yeah. Inside his mind, yeah. Mm. Uh, there was a gentleman in the front row. You spoke about um, finding Bangor and how perfect it was. How long does that whole process take in terms of, and do you have a deadline of finding all those locations before you start shooting? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. There's a deadline. They, they have, a, they, <clears throat> depending on the scale of the budget, you have you have a thing called prep, and you have a bit of pre-prep. So pre-prep is is sort of um, a blue sky thinking with the director, looking at all sorts of imagining you're going to go to Brazil and la la, and then you get to the production, <laughs> you get to this thing called pre-prep, and it all comes into focus, and everyone says you've got tuppence and you're in Bangor. <laughs> Great. Okay, we'll go there. No, I think, I think these days it's true that you follow film funding a bit, which is, is a bit of a shame, but there are film funds in different cities around the country, so that that's, that's, tends to happen. You think, well, where's their film funding? So I think Dad's Army was made in Hull. <laughs> Big up for Hull, for my missus from Hull. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and they went there, you know, you wouldn't go, why would you make Dad's Army in Hull? But there's funding there and there's, there's you know, there's a sort of will. The, the local people are great. So in Northern Ireland at the moment, there's obviously there's this Game of Thrones going on in Belfast city itself. So that has a that has a, a sort of that's a big funded television series, and off the back of that, there are there are craftspeople coming out, younger craftspeople and stuff. So we had some fantastic local crew. That was great. So we went there because we knew that there was a sort of film culture, and we went there because there was some funding. And then when we got there, we we found Bangor Leisure Centre, which was a treat. 
it really it really ticked. I mean, we had the swimming pool that was already there, the squash courts were already there. Uh, you know, they had lots of 70s office buildings and then a couple of big spaces. So it was it was an absolute treat. Sure. And then we had all of the... Well, there's no one from Game of Thrones here, is there? But anyway, so we had all the support from Game of Thrones. We know them quite well, so we got some of their <laughs> construction team to make us all that plaster concrete that we used. They made that in sheets. And, and, and so we had their support, so... Yeah. <coughs> right. Any other questions? Yeah. I'm going to ask a question. You want to ask a question? I'm going to ask you one. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I was, um, I was interviewing Ben this morning for the um, Balladian website. We were doing interviews going to be published on there. And we got really derailed by a conversation about the head. And the, Baf the BAFTA <laughs> award as well. We spoke for way too long about both of those two things. And um, the, the head, um, he was really happy about the head, he said. We talked for quite a while. Particularly because he said the, connect well, the connective tissue, which is ridiculously realistic. <laughs> he said that actually you could put the face back on and it would still... It would how, did you, how did you do that? <laughs> ben wasn't sure himself. So, so the, um, the thing I said earlier about years of unpaid R&D, um, <laughs> I... <laughs> Uh, about five or six years ago, I got uh, approached for a film about a taxidermist. And one of the things we did a bit of work on was a, an on-screen skinning of a Great Dane. And they, um, the, I got a, a rather sheepish call from production uh, about halfway through the, the R&D stage. We're not made it, we're just doing chemical tests and material tests. And uh, they said, we, um, the advisor for the dissection scene, who is also a lecturer at a veterinary school, has said that they actually have in the freezer a Great Dane that we can just dissect. <coughs> so what would the budget implications be if we just got you to do the other stuff that's in the film and not make the Great Dane? I said, I'm not going to do effects on a film where you cut up a dog. And I, and I never did it, but I took all that tech research, I kept it in my back pocket, and then this film comes along. And, Amazing, I get to do it with a human head. So um, it's, uh, it's just varying degrees of hardness of um, silicon rubber uh, and uh, deliberately contaminating silicon rubber so it becomes very uh, sticky and stretchy. Um, so although we had the, um, uh, the pathologist on staff, my father-in-law is also a pathologist, so I've, I've gone to him over the years regularly. So we had all this stuff sort of ready to go. And the budget being what it was, I just sort of had to say, I think I know how I can do this, and make a promise. <laughs> uh, and then we turned up on set with three heads, uh, and it worked. So, yeah, very pleasing. It's, um, it's the, the design of the head, the, the look of the head, is based on a photograph of Damien Hurst with a real human head uh, that he took when he was doing an anatomy class at art college. Um, which is just called Deadhead. If you look it up online, you can find it. Um, and so they found an essay, an extra, who looked like the corpse from that photograph. <laughs> and we had him come in and we live cast him. And, uh, and then we sort of went from there, making all the different bits for it. <laughs> Mark, you said you had a question? Oh, um, no, I was just going to ask you if anyone actually enjoyed the film. <laughs> Yeah. We still actually got ten minutes, even though you just kind of like had a perfect <laughs> oh, yeah, ending. Thank you. But, uh, yeah. uh,
Yep, um, in the middle over there. Uh, I don't know who's got the nearest microphone. Uh, hi, I was wondering um, if any of you had any favourite pieces that you'd worked on. Uh, obviously the head seems to be quite popular. <laughs> but in terms of costume and the actual just like set design, did there anything really stand out for you? Well, I enjoyed making the, thing, the, the costume that Enzo wears at the end, I have to say, with all the bags. and mm. Mm. I really enjoyed that because you don't often get a chance to just, you know use your hands and just have a go and it kind of reminded me of my Doctor Who days when I was a youngster and you just had to make everything in your back garden so I actually really enjoyed that <laughs> that for me was and the necklace I really enjoyed making you know, it was like this is brilliant this is great when do I get an opportunity to do this sort of film you know and so I really enjoyed that personally you know that was my there you go Marky, which bit did you enjoy? I, I, I'm not sure if I've got a specific piece. I mean, I really enjoyed the collaboration with Ben Wheatley. And um, it was, it's just such a sort of, you know, uh, young, fresh, interesting... Voice. A, a voice, you know, a film voice and a way to make films. So that, that ex the experience of working with him was fantastic. And, and, and I say he's, like, being super creative, but every day was very calm. There's, there was no major... So he'd arrive, he's very appreciative of what we what we managed to pull together overnight between the last chaos and the next piece. I haven't really answered your question because I know you asked me a specific thing, but... Um, yeah, he's incredibly appreciative. Yeah, so... so Very excited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed making... I enjoyed... We didn't make them, but I enjoyed the, the designing of the, of the towers themselves, yeah. So it, I'm not sure if it comes across, but they're supposed to be a hand like this, yeah. yeah. So it's the, it was very hard. The top of the fingers bend, yeah? So the top of the fingers should bend like that, which is a ridiculous design <laughs> in anyone's terms. So the, 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 luckily, I had to manage to get my niece, who is an architect, a young architect with a super brain, to come and work with us. So um, I got her to work it out. I did the scribble with the bent fingers, <laughs> like this. <laughs> and so well, now you have to make that work. And, and then, of course, CG wanted us, the, the post-production people wanted us to... Uh, really create that building architecturally in some way so that they could see how it all connected because they then had to build it and do stuff with it you know so um, so that that was quite a challenge and enjoyed that the the, the um, forming of the five digits, digits. digits. <laughs> were they the models in um, jeremy's office yeah we we, we, we yeah we modeled the, them in jeremy's office you know yeah, the, in, really in sort of perspex as a sort of homage to it you know it's his world yeah and then let the child actors break. Yeah, yeah we yeah. bust everything. And there was nothing left. At the end. It, it was chaotic, wasn't it? At the end of the shoot, you went in and you go, this whole place has just been devastated. It's like a tsunami had gone through. And the, trouble, the, the, the supermarket was worse, yeah. though. Oh, and the, the supermarket, stumps, we yeah. trashed that. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but the, the truth of the matter was, it was it was because of the schedule and the actors. Normally, you, if you want to, you'd run in sequence, but you, yeah. you couldn't. So we would trash everything. And then next Monday morning, it had to all be back smart and new again. And we repainted that corridor, didn't we, about 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was all fun. Mm. But, that, um, to be honest, one of the... One of my favourite bits is quite a small bit, which isn't really in the film anymore. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter Ferdinando's character, his demise, mm. um, we made a dental appliance for him because he's meant to have had his teeth smashed out with his own BAFTA. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, and so we were sent a BAFTA. Yeah, that um, was my wife's BAFTA. Yeah. <laughs> to steal it and tell her nothing, she's here in the audience. <laughs> which we moulded. Yeah. And then we made foam versions and uh, resin versions. Yeah. And we had little... Uh, laser cut, well, 
they, for us they were laser cut, uh, little plates with fake uh, fake award, fake documentary titles mm. and, uh, and names on them. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the dental appliance was designed by taking a cast of Peter Ferdinando's teeth in a makeup shop basement in Soho and, um, and then sculpting all the teeth in and then literally just pressing a BAFTA against it <laughs> to see that, make sure they were all displaced in the right direction and then taking a file to them and snapping ends off and all that kind of stuff. I've, 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 <laughs> that was very, very satisfying piece. No, I, I've, I remember something that I've quite enjoyed doing is, is, is the, the bonnet where the guy smashed mm. into the Triumph Herald. But we didn't have enough money to use an effects team and there were none in Northern Ireland apart from the ones who were taken up with Game of Thrones. So we did it internally. Got my son and another art director. I got my son over and we used um, very heavy-duty kitchen foil. Uh, yeah, so we, so we had to build a mould of the bonnet that slotted in. It's a real old 70s bonnet, so it has a big, thick line. And so we made a mould of that, and then we pressed like, burrs down this sort of tin foil, you kitchen were a bit foil. Nervous, yeah, I was nervous because we're <laughs> supposed to have a special effects person doing it, and we're, we're all doing it ourselves. And then, and then the, 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 so, so, and, and, the, and the, obviously, the, when they shoot it, the camera team, they're just so focused on the day. It's like, next. So I'm looking around, I think we've got five. We've made five over five weeks. It's taken us to build five of these. They're super precious. So the first one didn't work. It went just crumpled. I was like, oh, my God. All of a sudden, I felt all the pressure of the effects team. <laughs> going, how many more have we got? And they go, there's three. I said, OK. Ben, there's only three left. Yeah, oh, don't worry, don't worry. Anyway, we got it, we got it on the last, the last shot, was the one we used in the film. Because it, it was a combination. We literally had the actor hung in the air. And so we oh, shot it okay. high speed and we slowly dropped him down until he just crumbled into it. <laughs> he was very anxious about the whole experience. <laughs> 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 very brave and very anxious, but it was, it no, was you know, yeah. they it were did a great pay cast, off. Though, yeah, were. they were great like that. Everyone yeah. bailed in. I have to say, it's so, one, of, one of those yeah. casts you get who are just like, just love original scripts, you know, so often we don't do individual, really original things. Yeah, that's true. And they were just so pro the film and they really gave a lot of their time, which is really generous of them. Mm. Mm. So does that mean, um, Dan, we should expect some X-rated deleted scenes on the DVD? Um, <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, sadly, Ben doesn't like to share the bits he's cut out. Um, unless, uh, unless Film 4 make him do it, as with Fields in England. Um, but <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I don't know if we'll see anything uh, else. But to be honest, there's not there's not that much gory stuff that isn't in there. Just some BAFTA and there's teeth just action. Some, yeah, and we oh, like yeah. we made we made um, hollow foam paint cans that people could fall into so that they'd burst but not hurt anyone and that kind of stuff. So just details that you you know blink and you'll miss them because you don't know they're there. Like the bean can to the back of the head. Mm. It's just a foam bean can. But you'd, I should hope so too. You'd not think. <laughs> it's quite hard to get a foam bean can going at speed, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but you've got to, it's the balance between the weight and the rigidity of it. <laughs> <laughs> Things yeah, that fun. only on the movies you'd have to think about. Yeah, I, I think when you're being budget conscious, a lot of the stuff that would probably get cut out later gets cut out before it's been paid for because it's <laughs> just frugality yeah. dictates. Because um, there was a slightly nastier version of the bonnet fall earlier, which we costed up. Um, yeah. Because he was going to have something else dropped on him afterwards. Yeah. And we, were, we costed up a full cut-out car bonnet with the actor hidden inside it, and then a false torso laid out across the bonnet, oh, and safety screens. And <laughs> <laughs> but, and, you know, so I'm sure you can imagine cutting out the engine block of a... Of a I've never tried. A vintage car is quite <laughs> expensive. <laughs> I mean, all of the kind of, like, the gore and the paint splatter and stuff, does that 
kind of upset you in a way a deal after you've made these beautiful costumes no. and then they get ruined. <laughs> no, I think you, you know that right from the start, so you mm. just kind of make it happen, you know, right at the beginning, no. Um, but, well, there was a scene, wasn't it, where we had to get all the washerwomen in the pool. Oh, yeah, that was, that was trickier, harsh. yeah, because we, we were using... Yeah a lot of original 70s and yeah. it was the speed that we I had little issues with the with my friend here because he was breaking down the sets so fast that the, yeah. some of the sets weren't dry do you remember so we used yeah. to, go, we used to yeah. go on the set in the morning and sit everywhere and make sure this stuff wasn't <laughs> there were hair dryers all yeah, over yeah. going like this trying because to get it just turned around. around really quickly and i yeah. couldn't um you know i had oh, to keep God, reusing yeah. the same clothes all the time uh, on the crowd, and uh, that was really tough, I think. Uh, on You know, one minute was completely dry, kind of normal, the next minute was all disintegrated, sprayed with this stuff that had oil or something, whatever it is, in it, to make it look all... And then, then suddenly Ben would say, I want you to just roll around in all of this. So we would... we um, mm. Or lie in the corridors, you know, all those shots in the corridors. So that was, from a, again, from a budgetary point of view, that was mm. quite tricky. So I was more worried about destroying originals rather than destroying mm. things that are made because mm. I you know I love original I mean I'm you know passionate about costumes so you know to destroy an original is more painful <laughs> than to destroy <laughs> than something you've made yeah mm. we did have a few moments with Jeremy because we weren't quite sure how many times you'd get stabbed <laughs> <laughs> or shot rather yeah shot, yeah, yeah shot yeah or how that was going to play out because that was another scene that played much simpler in the end than it, you know. Mm. Just as you finally got him into a clean white costume. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that was yeah. And there was a, quite a lot of white, actually, because that was another part of the film, wasn't it? Because she goes into, Sienna goes into white, and he, he was always in white. Mm. Um, that, that whole royal apartment was white. With the, mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How are we doing for time? Oh. Half past. Um, the marauding gangs are about to start uh, attacking the cinema, so we'll have to unfortunately. Okay, that's uh, another question. Go. One more oh, question. go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just heard about the original costumes, but I was wondering about the props in general. Um, did you go on a longer search for original pieces, or was it an easy decision to um, just build things new? Uh, no, the answer, the answer to that is that we, we, we went on long searches for things. I mean, it's a new age now with eBay and blah, blah. You can, it's incredible what you can find quite quickly. So, yeah, the cost, of, the cost of making original things would be prohibitive unless it had a very specific need, like you needed nine of them to smash or do something with. So sometimes we cast, we get the one original, then we cast ten more so we've got ten of them. So you use the original as the, as the basis. But no, it wasn't a lot in that particular film. There wasn't a lot of, there was a lot of inventive building of silly things, but not, 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 not classic props. They were purchased, mostly. Or so let's say the supermarket, that wasn't, that was, that was all graphic. So it's just, we bought thousands of tins and boxes and then had to just paste them. We had a team of young, young people <coughs> just uh, cutting out and covering boxes. So that whole, the whole supermarket, but that, that had a lovely simple vernacular of, you know, Ben was very clever and decided we'd only use two typefaces in the whole film. If you look through the film, it's just one or two typefaces all the way through. It's brave so, like that. Yeah, then, so it? It, was, it was very, very simplified, you know, what we had to try and achieve. Because that can always be a terrible mess when someone says, can you make a supermarket? 
Yes. <laughs> um, thank you. Cool. Thank you. Um, Mark, Adil, Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. Ben Wheatley's film of J.G. Ballard's High Rise is still showing in all good cinemas across the UK and is well worth a watch. If you're interested in the band 1976 comic Action, edited and written by Pat Mills, which I brought up in conversation earlier in the podcast, as it has a brief cameo in the film High Rise, then you might want to listen to the latest episode of Panel Borders, my fortnightly podcast and monthly radio show about comic books, and can be found on my blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com. In this episode of Panel Borders, comic book historian and lecturer Martin Barker discusses the history of Action Comic, how it was launched on Valentine's Day and then banned by October 1976, and discusses the comic with writer Pat Mills and artist Jim McCarthy, who would work on Pat's later comic, 2000 AD. For more information about all events taking place at the British Library, please go to bl.uk-events. And their next event, looking at classic literature, which has been adapted into other media, is a panel discussion entitled Don Quixote in Words, Pictures and Film, in which broadcaster and art historian Andrew Graham Dixon will be discussing adaptation of Cervantes' Don Quixote with Edwin Williamson from Oxford University, Rob Stone from the University of Birmingham, and graphic novelist Rob Davis, who adapted Quixote into a two-volume graphic novel set recently published by Self-Made Hero. Don Quixote in Words, Pictures and Films takes place on Friday the 1st of April from 6.30pm, with general tickets at £10 and concessions from £7. To book tickets, please email boxoffice at bl.uk. Elsewhere in the British Library, their exhibition on Alice in Wonderland runs until the 16th of April, and on the closing weekend of the exhibition, they have a pop-up shop in the foyer celebrating all things Alice. Another full-day symposium looking at architecture's influence on another medium is taking place in Ohio on the 1st of April, and examines the relationship between graphic novels and architecture. Taking place at the Cleveland Museum of Art in association with Kent State University, graphic novelists including Alison Sampson, Francois Mouly and Chris Ware will be discussing architecture in graphic novels, and the entire event will be live-streamed on their website. The symposium kicks off at 1pm Eastern Standard Time, which works out as 8am in the UK, and you can stream the conference by going to graphic-novel-architecture.com. Reality Check was edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find all previous episodes at sci-fi-london.com-podcast, and I'd like to thank John Fawcett at the British Library for inviting me to host the production panel regarding High Rise at the J.G. Ballard Symposium. There'll be a new episode of Reality Check online soon, and if you'd like to find out more about High Rise, then Virginie Selavy, the editor of Electric Sheep magazine, discusses an early production of Crash with director Harley Cochlis, Art with J.G.'s daughter Faye Ballard, and High Rise with its director Ben Wheatley, 
at electricsheepmagazine.co.uk stroke events, and there'll be a new episode of Reality Check online soon. Thanks for listening.